On episode 232, I'm interviewing Aji Ghosh, head of research and data science at Sky. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in probably the most difficult one, market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com. Hi, I'm Jamin Brazil, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Aji Ghosh, PhD in Computational Cognitive Modeling, Grounded Semantics, Machine Learning, Head of Research and Data Science at Sky. Sky is a media and telecommunications company. It's owned by Comcast and headquartered in London. Sky is Europe's largest media company and pay TV broadcaster by revenue with 23 million subscribers and more than 31,000 employees as of 2019. Aji, thanks very much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast. Thanks for having me. We'd like to start out with getting a little bit of context about yourself. Tell us a little bit about your early days, your parents, maybe how they informed your current career. Sure. So I grew up in Vienna, Austria, and um, my mom was a math teacher. So from quite an early age, uh, I was used to seeing a lot of uh, numerical books around the house and just got a sort of flavor for uh, numerical puzzles and those kind of things. And my dad was, well, retired, both are retired now, was a diplomat for the UN. So was pretty much in civil service for about 35 years um, and was more interested in politics uh, and diplomacy, etc. And for me, the sort of contrast between the world of diplomacy versus sort of maths uh, was quite straightforward. I found one really boring and I really liked the other. So yeah, clearly I went for the more mathematical route. Thinking about like math, a lot of people would, I say a lot of people, maybe a lot of my kids think of math as kind of the boring subject in their life, which is funny because about 80% of my life is centered around math as a professional. Do you have, like, what was your connection into mathematics? So in addition to my mom, I think the main connection to math was that I actually had a really uh, good math teacher uh, growing up. And I had, uh, her name was Miss Salamechi. And she she introduced us to math in a really fun and exciting way. Math wasn't this boring, dull thing that you did inside classrooms. Math was something you did in the real world. You explored things. You looked at how rivers streamed. Um, you just had fun. So the way I got engaged with math was more, more as a way of just, we would now go outside. Yes, we'd learn a few things, but we'd really just have a lot of fun. Um, so in many ways, it was actually better than you know like gym or or anything like that uh, physical education because yeah you 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 had a lot of time to just explore things um ask questions and the emphasis wasn't oh look at these dry equations and and try figuring that no no we you know we were trying to find the real world with numbers oh that's that's so such a great point about the importance of engagement with um a subject and the role that the teacher plays do you keep in contact with her at all if you does she have any like sense of her impact on your life and the success that you've you've had? Yes. So after, well, not recently, but after um, I got my bachelor's in uh, psychology, so quite a few years ago, uh, I reached out to her and sort of said, you know, I, 
the, the main reason why I opted for all the maths and the statistics courses within psychology, which is quite rare. Most of us sort of tend to avoid those <laughs> those subjects. Right. Um, was was down to her teaching. And that of another one, Mr. Felvinci, who was my technology teacher. Um, and he got me more sort of into the sort of computer science and the code side of things uh, quite early on, so since I was sort of like 11. So I reached out to both of them. And in fact, after... Yeah, so well, now that I've got my PhD, I was planning on actually reaching out to both of them if they're still at the same um, school. And congratulations on the PhD. I, I really don't have a sense of context in terms of when you achieved that. Joachim Brecha, the president, I call him El Presidente of SMR, he um, uh, mentioned on Twitter that I should tell you congratulations. So. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, yes, it, it, uh, to use his words, um, yes, very much fresh PhD. I literally um, passed my oral exam viva on Monday. Wow. So it quite literally is recent. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Congratulations. Fullheartedly. As you think about, I mean, you've experienced a lot of, um, I mean, just accomplishing your PhD is pretty a pretty remarkable challenge. But when you think about some of the biggest challenges that you've overcome, what, what would one be that stands out for you either personally or professionally? And how did you overcome it? So one of the things that I've had to personally overcome, which is probably the hardest thing, uh, is having my dad being diagnosed with cancer uh, almost six or seven years ago. And uh, he, he doesn't, uh, so I'm in London, but he's based in Vienna, Austria, so there's a lot of distance between the two. And uh, how do you cope with that? Uh, and, and sort of, you know, but my, my father's still a very proud a uh, very traditional um, man who who doesn't usually share a lot. So I wouldn't, for example, uh, share you know details of him going um, for chemotherapy or surgeries, etc. Uh, so so I, I was I would always find out after the fact, and he'd be like, "Oh no, I was all fine. <laughs> no need to sort of worry about it." That was quite quite tough over the last few years. But yeah, especially as sort of, yeah working full-time um, and at the same time also doing a PhD. Yeah, that's a, that's a heavy, that's a heavy lift. Is, is he doing, how's he doing now? Yeah, uh, he's doing, he's doing well. So, I mean, yeah, with, with the sort of condition he has, it's sort of difficult to tell, but it's stable now. So, so that's the, the main thing. You know, the issue with the, the, the parent transition is actually something that I'm terrified about addressing, to be honest. The, um, my father's 81 years old. And similarly to yourself, and it, he was, it's, I don't know what, if it's like generational or what, but you know, he was also diagnosed with, with cancer and didn't tell, you know, the, my sister and myself until after everything was pretty much in hand and sorted out. And it just kind of left, I think you're right. Part of it is just this pride thing. Like this is my burden to bear and I don't want to like leave it on my kids. But I, but as I think about like how it inform, has informed my you know, me as a uh, now parent, you know, I'm definitely more in line with sharing, I think, uh, maybe a little bit more in, in context of those, those struggles for preparation, et cetera. But it's definitely, I think, a generational, a generational shift. Yeah, no, absolutely. So my, my dad's 77, I think. Yes. And, um, and he, for most of us, he, he grew up in India. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit, it, you know, the cultural shift, the generation, generational shift is, is quite uh, significant. But yeah, similar to you, I, I, I don't have any kids uh, yet, but I'm much more in the sort of, yeah, let's be <laughs> open and upfront about everything. 
There you go. So let's shift gears a little bit. Machine learning. Yes. Talk to us a little bit about what machine learning is. That's probably a really good place for us to set a baseline. Mm -hmm. So machine learning is really the study of using algorithms, which are essentially recipes, for uh, performing a range of tasks, such as modeling, etc., without explicitly telling the computer what to do. So the machine learns, typically through a lot of examples, what we wanted to do and what um, sort of failure typically looks like as well. So a good example would be classification. Instead of assuming a certain type of relationship, it's all about teaching a machine to figure out from multiple, like many examples, what right looks like or what the two different you know, types of people or five different types of people look like. So that's really machine learning. Um, and to just uh, you know, contrast machine learning to traditional programming, Traditional programming, you have to sort of tell the computer what to do. And in many ways, you need to be the architect of the algorithm itself. So it's, re it's really the human intelligence traditionally that's encoded in the machine. Uh, whereas in machine learning, it's based on a lot of data and the machine gradually learning some representation that's useful. You know, when I think back on my statistics background, you know, in the late 90s or mid to late 90s, I was doing a lot more like segmentation analysis and regression and kind of basic stuff like that, uh, modeling out projected impact on product adoption and markets and whatnot. You know, we would, we would use math to basically create, whether it's, a, I mean, at a basic level, a histogram, right? Yeah. And then apply some art, I guess, to the segmentation piece of it. Yeah. It sounds like the application of machine learning here is really this more of a a standing position where it's always in that process of understanding and segmenting. Yes. So yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually. So it, yes, it, it's it's a bit more dynamic than traditional system. And then although we're talking about machine learning, obviously, the, for a lot of applications, you know, traditional statistics is still you know the right way of doing things. But the way machine learning sometimes approaches a problem is instead of having you know have you know a human analyst having to sort of uh, encode or recode for example variables in a certain way or combine variables in, you know from three into two the sort of fancy name for that is called feature engineering and instead of a human analyst having to do that um, a lot of machine learning algorithms not all but a lot of them are really good at doing that um, bit which actually you know people like me in some in the sciences uh, a decade ago you know, we had like stats courses all about feature engineering um, and these days, with some of the machine learning algorithms, you don't really need to do as much of that feature engineering um, as you sort of have to do with more traditional algorithms. So from your vantage point, where are you seeing it intersect with modern market research? And how are companies using it to help inform their, their decisions? So one of the, one of the great uh, use cases of machine learning, especially in sort of the market plans there and market research in particular, is uh, understanding unstructured data. So a lot of the times, I mean, you can use machine learning for any data set, structured, unstructured, because, you know, structured typically being simple sort of, you know, tabularized data that we're all kind of used to, you know, uh, and you can use machine learning for everything. However, for unstructured data, you know, text, images, that's where machine learning can really start looking at the patterns and start identifying trends that tip, you would you'd be very uh, sort of hard pressed to find using standard statistical methods. 
Um, so a simple example would be if you you know if you if you have a, a video with a bunch of different objects, you know, using certain stats, you can't really identify what's going on. But with machine learning, it's very easy to sort of segment um, a scene into uh, you know that's a table, that's a person. Two people are talking, and those kind of things are quite useful for for market research purposes as well, because you can all of a sudden automatically start uh, tagging videos or looking at uh, intonations in voice using um, sort of advances in uh, speech analytics. Um, and more importantly, you can start integrating multiple types of data as well. So you know, I talk about speech, for example, and then I talk about images, but you can start integrating the two and sort of start understanding is there an overall narrative structure that's developing. In in a particular video clip, you know, and, and across different types of video clips, are there are there different narrative schemas that are that are that are used? Those kind of things can be then codified and, and you can start understanding. Well, actually, you know, for these kind of um, for these kind of uh, videos, campaign A might perform really well. Whereas, you know, if the narrative schema is this, then actually campaign B or C might work really well. So those kind of things have historically not been able, you know possible with standard methodologies, but machine learning can help uh, decode that sort of, those sort of hidden patterns um, in very complex data sets, so image, text, but also sensor, um, sensor information, which, yeah, I mean, we at, we at Sky don't make that much use of, but I know others in more sort of FMCG areas do. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting use case. One of my thesis, um, evolving thesis is in the space is that one of the biggest opportunities in front of us is triangulating truth and triangulation is really a misnomer here. But what I mean is, you know, we have a survey or whatever data collection, IDI, et cetera. And that's really an isolation of, of a feedback without context. And the way that we can provide greater context is by incorporating into that, uh, that self-reported data, the, you know, whether it's behavioral or transactional or just, you know, the longitudinal points of view that that person may have had over time. But you're, you know, you're taking it even a step further by thinking, by being able to process the environments that the, like literally by the, from the video perspective of the environments that the people are um, uh, giving the feedback in, which is, you know, important maybe in the framework of the way that I'm going to respond on a bus ride is probably different than at home before bed. Exactly. Absolutely. And, and I'm really, and you know, so my, so my PhD was all about um, sort of looking at visual scenes and trying to understand meaning uh, that's embedded in the visual scenes itself. Uh, and one of the things I'm really passionate about working at, at Sky is to collaborate with the qual team um, headed up by Sarah Joseph, so sort of my equivalent on the qual side. Uh, and, you know, they, they connect, you know, rich data sources from people, um, you know, watching Sky or, or interacting with their services. Um, you know, uh, from the comfort of their ha- of their home, and all that data, a lot of times, doesn't really get utilized in in, in you know after after deed was done, we sort of you know move on to the next project. But what if we started slowly looking at how you know behaviors change over time? You know, going taking those images and then you know learning what those associations are. That that's potentially quite a rich source of information. That's that's actually I one time I did a this goes back a couple years. I literally two years. I um did a study where. It was uh, about a ten, I can't remember how many questions, ten to fifteen question survey. So short. At the end of it, I said, "Please take a picture uh, or a video of your room where you're giving me the the feedback." And I'll never forget one lady took a picture, and her she had these little kids, and they were running around like Lord of the Flies maniacs. It was hilarious. 
And all of a sudden, it really dawned on me that I could be missing a lot of information, you know, if I just made decisions based on this one mom in the context of how her day was going when she was providing that feedback, I may be in trouble. But of course, on, in, on average, we assume everything works out just like on average, everybody has 2.3 kids. So exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know exactly. Or how should we be training the modern analysts and the data scientists that are entering into market research now? Uh, for data science and analysts in particular, I think the main focus uh, should initially really be on communication. And yes, that might sound odd because you might expect me to say maths or coding, etc. But we have a lot of people who already are really interested in data science, and they're pretty good at coding, and they're pretty good at that, and usually they're quite interested in math as well. But what they really struggle with is communicating their findings, understanding what the problem is in the first instance. So, so a lot, especially a lot of junior data scientists and analysts might have produced, you know, exceptional models of, you know, that are sophisticated, etc. But actually, you're like, but are you really solving the problem that you're trying to address? And you know, they'll they'll very quickly jump to the modeling bit, but not really engage with clients or stakeholders or you know, internal stakeholders. So, I think communication is is definitely uh, something that we in the industry need to sort of um, help data scientists and analysts uh, sort of improve, but also uh, universities. And, and it's something that we've just recently started doing at University of London, which is for people who are doing sort of MSc programs and things like cognition computation, uh, making sure that they can present their work. They can present really complex ideas in, in fairly simple um, simple terms. So it comes with one. Second one, I would say, is statistics. A lot of people are starting to ignore statistics, especially uh, people more with a computer science background. You know, they, they sort of uh, you know, on course, they do online courses, etc., and uh, or even sort of degree programs, and they just assume if if they can learn if they can run machine learning algorithm A, B, and C, that's it. That's data science. They don't need to worry about things like probability and, and standard sort of um, you know, distributions and all those sort of traditional types of statistical methods, um, and that's really problematic because in order to sort of interpret the outputs of machine learning algorithms, actually statistics is very useful. So that is yeah definitely a, a, fo a focus area. Um, I would say uh, that that's sort of not utilized at all times. And then thirdly, um, algorithmic thinking. So I'm not saying coding because a lot of times people sort of go on a course and think, oh, okay, I can I can run a couple of scripts and that's it. Um, great. Whereas I'm talking about algorithmic thinking, which is what is it, what is a business? What is the business problem? What are the key components? What do we really need to focus on? And how do I create a model or a set of models that really addresses a question I'm trying to answer. And that can only be done if you move away from a mentality of, you know, problem A equals recipe C. Um, and a lot of times I see data science being run that way, where people automatically say, oh yeah, that's just another, you know, that's just another neural network being run, etc. Uh, and we kind of need to move away from that. So, uh, so yeah. Becoming sort of problem solvers should, should really be the goal. And then the final one, is, I would say, is uh, learning to learn. I've been in the world of, sort of data science for about 10 years now, and I've you know, used all sorts of different languages from like you know, basic, VBA, you know, SPSS apps, all the way to things like R, Python, MATLAB. And the only constant that I've, I've come across is you know, I've never been too wedded to a single. Um, solution or single algorithm, etc. And I've always had to kind of develop. So if you, if you don't sort of have that learning to learn mentality, analysts and data scientists will find it increasingly um, sort of harder to do their job um, in the future. 
I mean, going back to the first point that you raised about the importance of storytelling and really building out a narrative that people can relate to that, that ultimately provides action to the organization as opposed to just knowledge that how are you, how are they, how are you training? Like, is there a lynda.com courses set of courses like that, you know, for the masses or there is how do, or our organizations helping the people that are highly technical, whether, you know, I think of, you know, what you're talking about in data science in a lot of ways, analogous to developers, which, you know, in, from a cast perspective have been seen as maybe not the best. They're not the marketing guy, right. Or gal. So, yeah. um, yeah. how, how are they, how are they able to, like, if I, if I want to develop myself in this way and, and pull this skill out myself, do you have some like recommended resources? So I don't have any recommended resources in terms of like sort of structured courses or those kind of more formal training. The way I've found it quite useful um, uh, at Sky and places like Countermedia was basically through sort of buddying up very technical people with quite non-technical people. Or in many cases, um, you know, buddying up someone who is, for example, a content research expert, uh, but hates analytics, with someone who, you know, dreads talking about content research, but is very familiar with the latest machine learning techniques. Uh, and getting them to work on a project together. So, you know, and initially it's difficult um, and when, because they may not realize uh, that the other person's skills are, are useful. And, and, you know, at Sky, I had up both quant research and data science. So <laughs> a lot of times uh, I'm sort of a translator between the two. But over time, when you do buddy people up with very different skill sets, they start seeing the benefits um, and they start learning. Um, so, you know, the non-technical person will start understanding when, you know, a regression might be more useful than uh, a clustering versus, you know, data science might actually realize that, oh, there's a reason why, um, you know, the quant RM decided to simplify the narrative because otherwise the end stakeholder would really have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I mean, that's like a twofold benefit, isn't it? Because it, it goes, my, uh, uh, when I started Decipher, Jamie Plunkett, who's really the math brain of the, of the business, um, you know, I learned a lot. In fact, I learned 90% of my stats from him. Uh, despite the fact, of course, I took the classes in college, but the, you know, but the point is that, you, you know, you saw, we saw benefit with really cross training each other and, and shoring up those, those skills that may not come naturally to the individual. Exactly. And, and for me, it's, it's an ongoing process. I, you know, I, I, you know, I love engaging with you know, my peers who are sort of head of insight or head of strategy uh, and sort of understanding how, you know, they start you know, integrating that information um, into sort of their role, and you know how you know, how does the sort of you know head of program strategy, for example, uh, you know start making a decision off the back of that. So I, I think that that should be applied like across all levels and you know, um, all sort of experience bands because it, it, it genuinely helps everyone uh, do their job better. So tell me about the research project you're the most proud of, and maybe your thesis. <laughs> Actually, yeah. <laughs> but this is probably, yeah, uh, the research project for sure that I'm, I'm most proud of uh, so far. So my, so my thesis, my PhD thesis uh, is called Grounding Semantics in the Real World. So it's, it's all really about understanding how much meaning is there in the visual world. People obviously know about analyzing text is important, but my thesis uh, and research has shown that actually in a, in, a, in a simple photograph of like an office, you have books that are related to tables and desks and computers. And the fact that all these objects are co-occurring in the same scene actually says something. It says that these are, really, are related in a specific 
point in time and space. That is very similar to how text analysis is done as well. Text analysis has traditionally looked at what are the types of words that co-occur in particular documents, and because of that, you can start understanding what the key themes are. My research is uh, probably the first to do the same, but for the visual world. So it's, it's about really decoding the themes and the topics and the meaning. You know, that's in real life. And as an example of how it can be quite useful, uh, one, one of my chapters in my thesis was looking at uh, gender bias. So people typically will understand that, oh, yeah, gender bias is, is an important thing. And in text, clearly, it's quite likely to have a lot of gender bias. However, people don't really think a lot about images and how, how much bias there might be in images. So one of the things I looked at was you know, traditional terms like professions like teacher, doctor, uh, nurse, CEO, um, et cetera. And I just you know, programmed a simple algorithm that just uh, scraped the web and just downloaded a bunch of images. And then using my algorithm called, called Scene2Vec, I looked at the scenes and then codified that information computationally and based on that, you had women that you know that were very close to associations like nurse and teacher, and very traditional male associations with CEO and manager. And there was a real divide in, in the sort of semantic space derived from the real world, uh, you know, visual environment. So that was, I mean, that finding was interesting, but it was also obviously also very worrying because it shows that. Uh, when you train machine learning algorithms using you know, techniques like C2VEC, uh, you're also encoding the biases of the real world. Um, and that's something that a lot of people haven't really paid that much attention uh, to until very recently. I mean, that's probably the most important point that anyone's ever made on the podcast, right? So we almost could have this, and I hadn't actually considered it, we almost have this like self-reinforcing bias that's being generated by the algorithms that are serving up, us up the content in the way we want it, because that's sort of the way that we've been fed it. Exactly. Absolutely. And, 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 and from a lot of my PhD work, I've, I've noticed that in fact, and, 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 you know, I'm building on many people's work here. Um, you know, other people have found similar things in language uh, that these algorithms not only encode the biases, but in fact, in some cases they amplify the biases. So they really, they, they, it's almost like creating a caricature of bias in, in, in a sort of, you know, uh, in, in a um, statistical model, which is even worse. That's so interesting, which kind of gets back down to one of the reasons that understanding the math is so important. Absolutely. Because if, if you're just accepting the outcomes, then you could really be, you know, you could be the puppet, not the puppet master. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So, um Market research has gone through a lot of changes. I mean, what we're talking about is a pretty material change. How do you think the space is going to be different in the next five years? So I think the, the, the top three changes, I, I think, around um, market research changing in the next five years are around increased automation of repetitive processes across functions. So, you know, quant research, data engineering, data science, obviously, et cetera. And people having to be comfortable with the idea that things that they have always um, done manually um, is just going to be done automatically. And that's something that they'll have to sort of get used to. And that's a real sort of cultural shift. Uh, secondly, I would say there's going to be more of a transition from data processing to data engineering. 
So instead of having big departments, and we've definitely experienced that at Sky in my own department, then instead of having big teams of people that you know turn out tables for researchers or data scientists, um, you're going to have people that focus more on end-to-end automation of systems to enable and federate access to data. So upon researchers and data scientists can just you know create their own tabs quite easily instead of going through this sort of you know quite archaic sort of process of oh uh, someone has to create a tab spec and then that has to be codified and some so some sort of you know wizard in, in, in DP has to you know go through some code and run this etc. So I think that will start disappearing a bit and, and, and people in data processing will start hopefully retraining in the field of data engineering. Uh, so yeah that's something that we notice across a few different companies as well. Are you seeing companies that are doing this? So for example I know Microsoft has soft has a team where they're taking the you know, various, the disparate pieces of data that they have, telemetry data, and now, you know, they're codifying that into a, a schema. And, and then the next step for them in their process is to combine the self-reported data, you know, that's coming in from whether it's qual or quant in, you know, into that, so that into that system, in that schema, so that it can be, you know, processed in a streamlined manner, as opposed to having to be done by hand every time, which is tough. Yeah. No, exactly. Um, so, I mean, are you so my some yeah? So, my question is: Are you seeing like uh, is this is this innovation coming from within the brands, or are you seeing it being empowered from outside? So, I think it's being empowered from the outside because a, a, a lot of these kind of things uh, require sort of technical expertise that you know companies like Sky or at least in the in the research area and, and sort of data science area typically don't have in house. So, I know for example, companies like IBM are working a lot on creating very helpful higher level schemas to essentially help help non-technical people automate as much of their tasks as possible uh, and to add value in different ways. Um, so IBM's Compute Services is, is a great example of you know, integrating vast amounts of data in, in nuanced ways um, and ways that uh, humans can still shape. Uh, but then once you sort of you know, went through a couple of different tasks, it, the, the algorithm started learning what, what sort of automation is required and then can actually do that for the, for the humans. So you don't have to have sort of um, knowledge engineers as you had in the sort of 80s, having to sort of codify all of this manually. Uh, you know, you need to do it a few times and then systems like IBM and, you know, Google has some as well, um, can just do it automatically. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny to me, like even at a basic level, we still ask gender in surveys, even though it's vastly known right at the respondent level, especially if you're using third party panel, it's always known. And I mean, that's just one example. I, I think I did a study once on it and there's about on average, you'll see about 80 to 90 questions in a survey and of which about 17 to 20 are data points like ethnicity, etc., that are actually known about that respondent. And what's funny is, those are the questions that are used oftentimes in screening criteria, which then creates this like mass repeat. So if somebody's trying to take a survey, they're going to get asked that again and again and again. And I mean, this is like the simplest example I can think of, of, you know, where there could be a lot of benefit in that um, integrated data schema. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So AR didn't come up. Augmented reality, um, voice didn't come up, which I thought was interesting for you. Do you see those as playing a, a big role um, in in market research in the next five years? I think voice is going to play um, 
potentially more of an more of a, an important or dominating role. However, at the moment, the main stumbling block is quality of data. Mm. So either there isn't enough data, or the data is such sort of poor quality that even if you you know use a lot of sophisticated off the shelf algorithms, um, you don't get that much um, information out of it. Uh, in fact, we've had both of those uh, situations at Sky, where you know we have a lot of data um, from a lot of our sort of sessions, etc. But some of the quality just isn't good enough. I, I think also the algorithms for analyzing voice have to go still quite a long way in order for it to be fairly insightful for very large organizations like Sky, uh, with very sophisticated insights, uh, you know, functions that you know are you know spans of hundred people, etc. Uh, you know. For- a fairly small company, I can see voice being very useful and, and, and you know, might provide quite quite immediate uh, insights. But I've not really seen it being done at scale, um, except for potentially a few companies, uh, like or at least one startup that I know of called Verbalization. But we haven't used them at Skype um, so far. But I know that they've, for example, sort of codified voice and, and text in terms of like sort of 300 or 200, 300 dimensions, uh, psychological dimensions. Uh, and then using those, they can sort of um, add much more value uh, at the insight level using voice data. But I think those are the kind of things we're still not seeing enough of, um, the, the gap between data and so what are you going to do with all that information? Awesome. I really appreciate the lead on that company. I'm going to see if I can get them on the show. That's I just checked out their website. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll include it. I'll include, include a link in the show notes as well. Uh, so biggest issue. What is the biggest issue that either you're facing at Sky or like the thing that you wish that, gosh darn it, somebody in this world would solve this particular problem and make market research much better? <laughs> For me, the biggest issue is not getting the balance right between market research, and other types of insight generation. So that can include big data analysis or A-B testing or econometrics. You know, not just Sky. Pretty much most companies that come across through sort of lecturing at the Market Research Society. Um, Companies are fall between two extremes. You know, on on the one extreme, they do only A-B testing and they don't really value market research. On the other side, you have people that love market research so much that they don't care about sort of CRM or big data, etc. And the problem with that is that, uh, is that people rarely find the right balance of market research and other types of data exploitation. And a lot of the times that leads to market researchers getting a bit of a bad rep because um, you know, market research agencies especially will always pitch for you know, similar types of um, proposals, etc. without understanding the real deep sort of deeper business context and that can be quite uh, frustrating for you know internal um, uh, stakeholders you know managers, etc uh, so uh, if you know you know if i was you know at a Canfernison or or any other market research um, agency the main thing I, I would focus on is getting market researchers to really understand how businesses um, operate right now and how that's changing how um, you know Big companies have huge infrastructures invested already in, in systems like Tableau or other sort of dashboards, etc. And that market research has to sort of wedge itself into that ecosystem as opposed to being a standalone. Because that's that's usually when market research is, um, is sort of you know, ignored a lot of times. 
Yeah, that's such a that's a really interesting point. I mean, you're you're talking about a couple of things there that thematically that have have popped, you know, in the interviews that we've done here with major brands, right? Um, and that is, it it sounds like what I keep hearing is there's a constant need to have deep partnerships for the actual agencies and the people that are servicing the brands to truly understand with the business context of the insight and then you know partner perhaps a little bit more downstream with how that insight is going to get played out in the broader organization yeah exactly you know and it's interesting i mean that's so that's one part of it and 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 the other part of it i think that is is gosh it's so interesting this is a fascinating point to me so i just presented at facebook a couple last last week or maybe it's two weeks ago now and um in the presentation i talk about how many people were ux researchers or um uh market researchers and the majority were centric to data science and and well ux first and then data science and then market research so i thought it was really fascinating right um and it wasn't just there were a lot of there were a lot of companies google and others that were represented in this in this audience and so what i find so interesting is they are all doing similar types of research but it feels like there's a reinventing of the wheel that's happening inside of these newer disciplines yeah. that market research has kind of been doing for decades. But and yet there isn't this like cross sharing or the Venn, the Venn diagram hasn't quite, you know what I mean? There, yeah. There's there's not the knowledge transfer that exists. Yeah. No, no, that, that's something I've noticed um, at quite a few MRS uh, conferences, et cetera, that depending on... You know, the type of company, especially if you're at a you know digital native like you know, the Googles and Facebook, um, a lot of the times they're reinventing um, sort of techniques that you know market research has addressed many years ago, um, but at, at, at a more strategic level. And yet, people uh, sort of see or, or sort of bucket a lot of market research as oh, but that's just asking questions, right? Um, and, and and sort of simplifying market research into just you ask questions, you get answers. Uh, and they sort of ignore the fact that actually a lot of the sort of you know A/B testing methodology, etc., actually stems from market research. That's a great point. Um, That's such a great point. <laughs> so, so people sort of um, create these sort of artificial you know divisions between it's the same thing with like machine learning versus statistics, and people love sort of just separating things into into buckets. Um, and there, I feel there aren't enough people that try looking for the overlaps between all the different areas um, and try to truly you know get the best combination. Of solutions for whatever business problem there is. Do you think there's a role inside of big organizations, more of this uh, product manager for consumer insights? I don't know how to, I don't know what the yeah. what title would be, but if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, it does. Yeah, you know, yeah. no, I'm not sure what, what, what the optimal title would be, but yeah, there's sort of translation role as well. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, it's, I mean, I, was, I just, I was like, Lenny Murphy shared a list with me of, um, uh, technology companies in the in centric to market research and there's over 600 which actually surprised me i thought it was closer to 200 okay the so it's a massive amount and the amount that's spent now of course you have like the qualtrics is in there so you've got 400 and some odd million dollars but the the sum of monies that they represent is in excess of 12 billion dollars which is a you know meaningful amount of of um, spend that's happening. And so, you know, we've entered into this time where consumer insights is, it's really never been easier to get the voice of the consumer or the, uh, a person's point of view. Um, but at, at the same time, it's probably never been easier to screw up the implications of that 
and walk away with a bad, you know, a bad point of view or an incorrect point of view of what that data actually means because you don't necessarily have the, just because it's easy doesn't mean you should do it, right? A, yeah. a scalpel in the hands of a kid is a big problem. So um, that, you know, the, the broader point is, you know, just because everybody has a license to do a survey, does that mean that that's, you know, that's acceptable and should, you know, should brands think about that broader role of, again, I don't know what the title is, consumer insights keeps coming to mind, but I feel like that might be too narrow. So anyway, that's what I got. That's my soapbox. <laughs> What is your personal motto? So my personal motto is this famous quote from uh, Isaac Newton, which is, um, if I've ever seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, and that's sort of my guiding principle all the time, which is you know, try finding established uh, studies or academics or anything get get hold of them and then see, you know, instead of reinventing the wheel, what can I develop on top of the existing literature? to address a particular business challenge or academic challenge. That's a perfect way to go out. My guest today has been Aji Koch, Head of Research and Data Science at Sky. Thank you, sir, very much for being on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. And for having me. Everyone else, if you found any value in this, I would greatly appreciate it if you took the time to screenshot it, share it with your friends. And as always, your reviews are greatly appreciated. You can always reach me anytime through Email jamin at happymr.com as well as the handle jamin brazil or brazil um, on any social media platform. Have a wonderful rest of your day. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in probably the most difficult one, market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com.